0: Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at Bethelpbc.us. We have been engaged for the good bit of 2021 in an extended look at the book of Hebrews. I don't know of any passage that is more Christ-centered, more comprehensive as far as including the narrative of both testaments and bringing it all together, and more important for our day than the book of Hebrews. And one reason it's important is because it shows us the proper place of the law in the Old Testament and shows us the superiority of the gospel under Christ. There is a real fascination with Judaism in many religious circles today. The Hebrew Roots movement is uh, growing by leaps and bounds. And I think if people would read the book of Hebrews, they would understand that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all that was anticipated in the Old Testament, and that he is our great high priest. And we come today in our study to the seventh chapter of Hebrews, and we want to try to speak on a superior priestly order, and today we're going to consider one of the most obscure and mysterious and fascinating characters in all of Scripture, a man by the name of Melchizedek, and this is a demanding chapter, I freely admit that, that's one reason perhaps that the Apostle Paul, when he anticipated talking about Melchizedek in chapter 5, put it off for a whole chapter, And one might ask, why does he now address it in great detail in chapter 7? And the uh, answer to that is probably that uh, Paul said, well, if we're going to talk about it and we need to talk about it, we might as well go ahead and do it. So let's wade in with both feet. He does so by divine inspiration. And that's sort of my approach. That's one reason that I have uh, delayed for the last month (laughs) before we looked at chapter 7 but today I'm going to rush in where angels fear to tread, and I ask you if you dare to go with me. Let's begin by reading Hebrews chapter 7, the first 10 verses. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace, without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually. Now consider how great this man was, unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of the spoils, and verily they that are of the sons of Levi, who receive the office of the priesthood, have a commandment to take tithes of the people according to the law, that is, of their brethren, though they come out of the loins of Abraham, but he whose descent is not counted from them received tithes of Abraham and blessed him that had the promises. And without all contradiction, the less is blessed of the better. And here men that die receive tithes, but there he receiveth them of whom it is witnessed that he liveth. And as I may so say, Levi also who receiveth tithes paid tithes in Abraham, for he was yet in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. We'll leave off reading there in the inspired Word of God this morning. The particular episode that is referenced here in Hebrews 7 is in the 14th chapter of Genesis. I'm going to ask you in a few moments to go back with me to Genesis 14. We'll look at that story when Melchizedek met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek and Melchizedek blessed him. That's what we just read here in Hebrews chapter 7. You'll notice that the verse previous to where we started today is the end of chapter 6, which says Jesus is made a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And the word order is the root of our word ordain, an order. If you know anything about Roman Catholicism, you know that one of Catholicism's seven sacraments, Now we only have two ordinances, Baptism and the Lord's Supper, but Catholicism has seven, they call them, sacraments. One of their seven sacraments is Holy Orders, the Sacrament of Holy Orders. And perhaps you've heard of the different schools of priests or monks. You've got the Augustinian Order. Martin Luther was an Augustinian monk. The Franciscan Order after St. Francis of Assisi. You've probably heard of the Dominican monks, the Dominican order, the Benedictine monks, and the Jesuits, and so forth. These are different orders. Well, our text says that Jesus is a priest, not in any human ordination, not after the order of Augustine or St. Francis of Assisi or the Dominican monks, but Jesus is a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. His class, if you please, is that he belongs to the Melchizedekian order, not to the Levitical or the Aaronic order. You know, the Old Testament priests that made sacrifices in the tabernacle and later the temple were descendants of Aaron. They were descendants of the tribe of Levi. They were Levitical priests. And our passage this morning reminds us that Levi also, verse 9, paid tithes in the loins of his father Abraham. When Abraham paid tithes to the priest, when Abraham gave his donation to the priest, Levi, who was not yet born, he was still in the loins of his father Abraham, as it were, also offered such an act of homage to this greater individual, this more important individual because of his priestly office. That's the thought here. Now we know that priests Represented the people to God. God is so holy that no person can possibly come into the presence of God without a mediator. I can't just rush in and say, God, I demand a hearing. And you can't either because we are sinners. And therefore we need someone to represent us. We need a priest. The Latin word for priest is pontifex, which means bridge builder. And a priest is one who builds a bridge, if you please, from the center to the throne of God. This great gulf, a priest, stands between God and man, and he lays his hand upon them both. He's the bridge, if you please, between God and men. And the theme of the book of Hebrews, if you'll remember back to the very first sermon that we preached, you say, Brother Mike, I can't remember back that far (laughs) I understand but if you remember back to the beginning of this book we talked about Jesus the mediator a mediator is a go-between one who represents both parties he incarnates the offended party and the offending party a mediator well God is the offended party in the story of redemption right He's the one whose law has been broken. And man is the offending party. You and I are the sinners. Jesus came as God of very God. And he assumed our nature as a man. Therefore he can properly represent God to men. And he can properly represent men to God. He's the one mediator between God and men. The man Christ Jesus. He's our priest. Now in the Old Testament... There were three mediatorial offices, prophet, priest, and king. And the prophet represented God to the people. He spoke for God. You remember how the prophet usually began his discourses? Thus saith the Lord. He's bringing God's message to the people. He represented God to the people. The king represented God to the people. He stood as the ultimate authority over the kingdom. David was a king. Solomon was a king. Jehoshaphat, Uzziah, Hezekiah, these were godly kings of Judah. And the priest then represented the people to God. So the prophet and the king represented God to the people, the priest represented the people to God. And of the three mediatorial offices, prophet, priest, and king, the oldest, the most ancient, the one that goes farthest back in antiquity is the priesthood. For before Israel ever had a king, Which, by the way, is the last of the offices that came about. And before they ever had a prophet, they needed a priest, someone, to represent them to God. So the priesthood was the earliest mediatorial office. And the theme of Hebrews, which is such a wonderful book about the person and work of Christ, the dominant theme of this book is the priesthood of Jesus Christ. He is our priest. And we've talked about the fact that before that you need a priest, I need a priest, and thank God we have one. I'm not your priest. The church is not your priest. No human being is your priest, but Jesus Christ, God of very God, who assumed our nature in the incarnation. Jesus is the perfect high priest. He's the great high priest. And because he's our priest, he makes sacrifice for us. When did he do that? On the cross. He was not only the sacrifice that was made, the Lamb of God, but he was the priest that made the sacrifice. And that one offering forever sanctified all for whom he died. And not only does he make sacrifice, he prays for the same people. He intercedes. You know, a priest would intercede. A priest is someone who can understand you. You say, that's what I've always wanted, Brother Mike. I wanted a friend. Someone who shared my burdens. Someone who could understand my difficulties in life. Well, you have one. And he's the son of God himself from all eternity past. Jesus Christ is our priest. So that's the dominant theme of this book. Everything we've been reading about thus far in Hebrews has been leading up to this theme. And now he is about to develop this theme in chapter 7 through 10. And Chapter 7 starts off by reminding us of how Jesus is qualified to be a priest. You say, Brother Mike, just a minute, that's the problem. Jesus is not qualified to be a priest because he came from the wrong tribe. Only the sons of Levi were priests. You see this in verse 14 it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning the priesthood. The priesthood came from the tribe of who? Of the 12 sons of Israel, of Jacob. Which tribe was the priestly tribe? Levi. If you know your Old Testament, you know that the Levites had no inheritance in the land, but they were given inheritance to live among the people. All of the other tribes that had their parcel of real estate, the Levites could live in that area free of charge, and the people were called upon to take care of the Levitical priests. For the priests did the most important work. They were the spiritual avenue or means or instrument by which the people could approach God in worship, the priests. The Levites were the priestly caste. And if you weren't a Levite, you couldn't be a priest. The kings came from what tribe? Do you remember? Judah. Genesis 49.10, one of the earliest prophecies concerning the Messiah, says the scepter, that is the symbol of authority, It's what a king holds in his hand, the scepter, shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come. Judah was the kingly tribe, and prophets were chosen from all of the tribes. God chose preachers or prophets from all of the tribes. So you have these three categories of mediatorial office. Well, Jesus was not qualified to be a priest, and this is what the Jews would have said. How can he be a priest because he's not a Levite? And the argument in Hebrews 7 is that though he's not a descendant of Levi, he's a priest after another order that came before Levi, the order of Melchizedek. For Melchizedek predated Levi. Even Abraham recognized that Melchizedek was superior to him. And Levi himself paid tithes to Melchizedek while he was yet in the loins of his father Abraham. That's the argument of Hebrews Now I told you this is demanding, and it requires us to uh, put on our thinking caps, and you're doing a good job thus far, and I don't want to get too bogged down, but with that background, after that lengthy introduction, let's talk about the mystery of Melchizedek, then we'll talk about the history of Melchizedek, and then the greatness of this man, or of this priest. The mystery of Melchizedek, let's talk for a moment about what we don't know for sure about him. He is a mysterious character, isn't he? Who is he? Verse 3 of our reading this morning says he is without father and without mother. Now, stop right there. Do you know anybody that fits that description? Without father and without mother. You say, well, the only person in history that fits that description that I'm aware of is Adam. Adam is without father and without mother. God made Adam. He created him out of what? The dust of the earth, not from a man or a woman. You know, Adam was made without a man or a woman. Eve was made with a man, but not a woman. Jesus was made of a woman, but not of a man. But you say, the only person in history that I know of who's without father and without mother is Adam. But the next expression says, not only is he without father, without mother, he's without descent, no descendants. That doesn't apply to Adam, does it? For Adam, all human life has descended from Adam. So without descent doesn't apply to Adam. Who is this mysterious character? Is he an angel? You may be interested to know that there have been people that have held the position that Melchizedek was Michael the archangel or another angel. Now, I have a personal problem with that. I think it's legitimate because chapter 5 of Hebrews, you may remember in the first verse, says that a high priest must be one who is taken from among men to represent men to God. So an angel cannot be a priest because he doesn't share the nature of those that he represents. A high priest must be a fellow human being. So it couldn't be an angel. Another view of Melchizedek is that he was Shem, Noah's son. You know, Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And from Shem comes the Semitic people. And the Jews actually favored this view that Melchizedek was ancient Shem. And the reason they take that position is because Shem lived on both sides of the flood. And he outlived eight generations after the flood, Only Abraham outlived him, and that by only 25 years. So Shem is, in a sense, without ancestry and without descent because he's on both sides of the flood. This was, again, the favored position among the uh, Orthodox Jews. But having neither beginning of days nor end of life, as far as people were concerned, Shem had been around forever. I don't know that that's the answer either. I know that some of our minister brethren hold to that view, and they make some compelling arguments. But I say there's mystery here. The other position that is popular is that Melchizedek was a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ, a Christophany. Now, you see these Christophanies oftentimes in the Old Testament. When um, Samson was born, the angel of the Lord appeared to Mr. and Mrs. Manoah, When they asked his name, he told them it is secret. By the way, that word secret in Judges 13 is the same word translated wonderful. In Isaiah 9, 6, his name shall be wonderful. And he ascended to heaven in the flames of the offering. And also you'll find this Old Testament Christophany or pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. When Jacob wrestled with the angel all night and the angel finally blessed him and changed his name to Israel... And there are several Old Testament references. One is Daniel chapter 3, when the three Hebrew children are in the fiery furnace. And the king looks in there the next morning and he says, I see four loose and walking in the form of the fourth is like unto the Son of God. So there are these pre-incarnate, that is before his birth. In the Old Testament, the second person appears, sometimes in human form, christophanies is what they're called and there is the view that melchizedek was a christophany you say, brother goins which of these popular views do you hold that he was an angel or that he was Shem, or that he was a pre-incarnate appearance of jesus christ and i have to tell you that i'll take the fifth amendment on that because i don't know that we can say for sure one way or another here is what i can say for sure is that Melchizedek is definitely an Old Testament type of Christ. Now, one of the features of the book of Hebrews is it is rich in typology. He constantly talks about these Old Testament realities and shows us a spiritual fulfillment. That's typology. Typology is the use of real historical events to foreshadow a later reality. For instance, you know, Moses' serpent on a pole, the brazen serpent in the wilderness. John chapter 3 says, As Moses lifted up the serpent on the pole, so the Son of Man should be lifted up on the cross, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's a type. That Moses' brazen serpent is a type. And we can be sure of this, that Melchizedek is the type, the Lord Jesus Christ is the anti-type, that He is the reality that Melchizedek points to, for he comes after the order of Melchizedek. He's a priest like Melchizedek was a priest, not in an official capacity, that is, as men look at it. The Jews would say, you're not a priest unless you're a Levite. Jesus was not a descendant of Aaron and Levi. How then could he be a priest? In this sense that he's the same kind of priest that Melchizedek was before the law was ever given, Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. So we've talked about the mystery of Melchizedek. Who is he? And that's not the dominant theme of Hebrews 7. We could bat that ball around all day. We could come up with different views. There are people called Melchizedekians today who believe Melchizedek was an ancient incarnation of the Holy Spirit. I do think it's evident that he is a historical figure. He appears in history, in a historical narrative. And now let's talk about that, the history of Melchizedek. We've talked about the mystery of him. Let's talk about what we do know about him. And let's move back now to the 14th chapter of Genesis. Keep your finger there in Hebrews 7. And let's look at Genesis chapter 14. I don't have time to go through this chapter. I would encourage you to read it on your own. But it's an interesting chapter. It describes World War I. You say World War I happened in 1912, 1914. No, World War I happened in Genesis 14 when certain city-state kings, now they had city-states back then. The person who ruled the city was seen as a king. We would say the mayor has complete and absolute authority. And it says that it came to pass in those days that Ariok, king of Elasar, kedor Laomer, king of Elam, and title king of nations, made war with the kings of Sodom, Gomorrah, Admah, Zoboam, and Zoar. You know where Sodom and Gomorrah is on your map. It's right in the place that is now filled with water called the Dead Sea or the Salt Sea. And the little town of Zoar is still extant. It still exists. That's the town lot when the cities of Sodom, Gomorrah, Admon's of Zoboam were being destroyed by fire and brimstone for heaven. Lot said, let me flee to Zoar, for it is a little city. It was the smallest. It's still there, but the others have been swallowed up in the Dead Sea. And you read about how in Genesis 13, the previous chapter, Abraham and Lot had a strife, and Lot pitched his tent toward Sodom. So what we have here in Genesis 14 now are three kings, Kedor, Laomer, and two others, make war with the kings of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adam, and Zeboam. And it says they joined together in the Vale of Siddim, which is the Salt Sea. Now, what is now the Dead Sea was once just a valley. And we read in verse number uh, 10 that the Vale of Siddim was full of slime pits. And the word for slime pits there is bitumen. And people that have worked in asphalt and who know anything about tar understand that the slime pits were very messy places. So the Salt Sea was once full of slime pits or tar or bitumen. And Kador Laomer makes his way, if you read Genesis 14, he makes his way with these other kings all the way from, his, from Elam. He makes his way conquering nation after nation or city state after city state until finally he comes to Sodom and Gomorrah. And we read in verse 11 that he took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah. The cities fell. That is, they were conquered there. And the people that were not slain fled to the mountains. And Laomer and these other two kings that were with him conquered this. And they took their goods and victuals away. And they took Lot, Abram's nephew. The story is that Lot was kidnapped and taken away as a prisoner of war. And one of the people who had escaped from the battle came and told Abram the Hebrew for he dwelt in the plains of Mamre. So if you look at your Jewish map sometime, he's down near Jerusalem in the town of Hebron. This has happened in the Salt Sea in the same area. And these kings now have set out up the coast of Israel with their loot. And Abram, when he hears the news, gathers 318 of his trained servants. And this was probably a Makeshift militia of people that he had trained to do battle because you were constantly under the potential of attack. And Abraham takes his 318 servants and he pursues them even unto Dan. So from Hebron to Dan, up the coast of, up the land of Israel, is about 120 miles. Abraham and his 318 men pursue King Kedor Laomer and the other two kings that were with him, and they've got Lot in their company, Abraham's nephew. And it says, Abraham, verse 15, divided himself against them, he and his servants by night, and smote them, and pursued them unto Hobah, which is on the left hand of Damascus. So they've gone all the way past Israel up into the land of Syria. And at the town of Hobah, they overtake Kedor, Laomer, and these other kings. And he brought back all the goods. So he divided himself and his servants by night into two companies. They In this surprise attack, they are able to defeat the enemy and they rescue Lot and all of the loot that the king has stolen from the cities of Sodom, Gomorrah, Edmund, Zeboam, It says they brought back all the goods and he brought also his brother Lot and his goods and the women also and the people. So Abraham, who's not a trained military general, yet he and his men have done battle and they've achieved victory. Notice now verse 17. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him after his return from the slaughter of Kedorlaomer and of the kings that were with him at the king's dale. So the king of Sodom comes out of hiding now. His city has been conquered. A lot of his people have been killed. He's escaped to the mountain, apparently. He didn't go down with the ship. And he comes out to meet Abram and he says, Good job. I'm so proud of you. He comes out to uh, congratulate. And Melchizedek... Now suddenly he appears on the scene. We've never heard of him before. And you won't ever hear about him after this except for one place in the Psalms. And then in the book of Hebrews. He gets two or three verses of fame here in Genesis 14. Very interesting. Melchizedek, king of Salem. Who is Melchizedek? We don't know. Without father, without mother, without descent. What is the significance of this man? I don't know. I do know his name is a compound of the Hebrew terms Melek, which means king, and Zadok, which means righteousness. And by the way, many of the Old Testament priests were actually named Zadok. If they came from a priestly line, like the, in the Levitical families, they would often name their sons Zadok, which means righteousness. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine. Now where have you heard about bread and wine before? Communion service, right? We have at the Lord's Supper unleavened bread and fermented wine. And here's the meal that Melchizedek the priest brings to Abraham. And it says he was the king of Salem. Salem means Jerusalem. You know the root of the word Salem is Salem. The word means peace. So he brings refreshments to Abraham. And his 318 servants as they returned from this successful battle. And he was the priest of the Most High God. Notice he's a king and a priest at the same time. Very, very interesting. And it says he's the priest of the Most High God. And that's the Hebrew name El Yon, Which speaks of the sovereignty of God. And it's more of a generic name. It's an international name. It's not specific to the Jewish people per se. So he's the priest of the sovereign God. Of heaven and earth. And he's also the king of Salem. He's a king and a priest at the same time. And it says. And he blessed him. So Melchizedek blesses Abraham. By the way who pronounces a blessing on somebody else. A superior blesses an inferior right. It's a parent that blesses a child. It's God who blesses us. The less is blessed of the better. That's a principle. Without contradiction, he says in Hebrews 7. That is, this is an incontrovertible principle. The less is blessed of the better. So if Abraham is blessed by Melchizedek, what does that tell you? It tells you that Melchizedek is greater than or superior to the father of the Jews, Abraham. And it says, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, El Elyon, possessor of heaven and earth. The Most High God is the owner, the possessor of the universe. And blessed be the most high God, he says. Here's the language of worship. Which hath delivered thine enemies into thine hand, and Abraham gave him tithes of all. The end, the last you ever hear about Melchizedek, as far as historical narrative is concerned. You'll read on here that the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me my people back and you can take the goods for yourself. And Abram said to the king of Sodom, I've lift up my hand. Notice he repeats the language of Melchizedek. I've lift up my hand unto the Lord. That's all caps in your Bibles. That's the name Jehovah. Unto the Most High God. That's El Yon. Possessor of heaven and earth. He uses verbatim the language of Melchizedek in his own oath. He says, I've taken an oath before the God of heaven and earth that I will not take from a thread even to a shoe latchet. Even that I will not take anything that is thine, unless you should say I have made Abram rich. He did not want himself to be beholden to the king of Sodom. Save only, here's the only thing I will take: that which the young men have eaten. They've needed victuals as we've done battle, and the portion of the men that went with me, Aner, Eschol, and Mamre. Let them take their portion. But as for me, I won't take anything. Now. Genesis 14 is the historical narrative of Melchizedek, the first and only time he ever appears on the scene of history. Melchizedek, though, is the hero of this story. Abraham pays tithes a tenth of all that he took. A tenth part of the spoils, he gives it to the priest. A tithe means a tenth. And Abraham tithed a tenth of the spoils to Melchizedek, and Melchizedek in turn refreshes he and his men with bread and wine, and he blesses him in the name of El Elyon, the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. Now if you turn forward to the only other time he's mentioned in the Bible besides Hebrews 7, it's in the 110th Psalm. And interestingly, many people believe that Hebrews is an extended sermon on the 110th Psalm that that's the text for this entire sermon that is the book of hebrews and that chapter 7 in particular that we're looking at this morning is an embellishment of psalm 110 verse 4 where it says thou art a priest forever after the order of melchizedek let me read you this and we'll have to stop here this morning but let me just read you psalm 110 and i want you to notice the king priest the king priest The Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand. By the way, Psalm 110 is the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. Some 27 times. It is either directly quoted or the allusion to it is so strong that it's unmistakable. Psalm 110 is the most quoted passage in the New Testament. It's the passage Jesus quoted in Matthew 22 when he asked the question, whom say men that I am? And Peter said, the son of David, and he said, how then doth David in the spirit, a reference to the divine inspiration of David's words in the Old Testament, how then doth David in the spirit call him Lord, saying, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand. That's a quotation from Psalm 110. And what you see in Psalm 110 is an intra-Trinitarian conversation between Jehovah and Adonai, between God the Father and God the Son. The Lord, capital letters, said unto my Lord, the Adon, or the Sovereign, the covenant God who enters into relationship with his people, Yahweh, the I Am, that's the first name, said unto my Lord, God the Father speaks to the Son. And by the way, if you don't believe in the Trinity, then verses like this are going to be completely unintelligible to you. The Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand. The Father has conferred honor on the son. The Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand. David says my Lord has been elevated to the right hand of the father. Who is David's Lord in this verse that is honored by the Lord? The Lord said unto my Lord. David says I have someone above me. I'm the king, but I'm not the ultimate authority. There's a Lord above me. And he has been elevated to the Father's right hand. David's Lord in this verse is the Lord Jesus Christ. How then doth David in the Spirit call him Lord? If the Messiah is David's son, then how can he also be David's Lord? For your son is never before you and above you. Your son is always inferior, subordinate. A son comes after the Father. Now, the fact is, dear friends, this son of David... The Lord Jesus Christ is also the son of God. Two natures in one person. Deity, humanity together. The Lord said unto my Lord, and notice the kingly language, sit thou at my right hand until I make thy enemies, thy foes, thy footstool. And for someone to be made your footstool means that you're, they're under your heel. You've heard the expression, he had his boot on the neck of his enemies. You've heard that expression. That's the idea. Your enemies will be your footstool under your feet. Until the last enemy is put under your feet, you will be enthroned at my right hand. And by the way, that's where Jesus is today, enthroned at the right hand of the Father, waiting until the last enemy, which is death, shall be destroyed. The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. That's the scepter. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemy. And notice the evidence of his sovereign rule. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. One evidence that King Jesus rules today, my beloved, is that his people, when they're born of the Spirit of God, they obey. They are willing. Thy people shall be willing. Somebody says, Brother Mike, if I believed what you did, that the Lord quickens his children directly and immediately, what if they don't respond? What if they won't comply what if they're not willing well this verse says they shall be willing God not only quickens his children but he gives them the will he gives them the desire he gives them the ability to respond when he spoke to Lazarus Lazarus come forth Lazarus didn't say well let me think about it a little while Lazarus came forth he was willing in the day of Christ's power and may I say when Jesus speaks his life-giving voice to one of his children that child of grace comes forth from death and sin to life in Christ instantly they that hear shall live they are willing in the day of his power king jesus rules and reigns over sin he rules and reigns over any obstacle that might prevent his success and here's the evidence of it his people are willing in the day of his power and then notice the next verse the lord hath sworn and will not repent thou art a priest king priest thou art a priest forever after the order of melchizedek let me make this point and we'll close king priests were unknown under the law. There are two people that were kings that tried to be priests at the same time and it cost them dearly. One was King Saul. You remember the story in 1 Samuel 15 when King Saul was waiting for Samuel to arrive and he was impatient because he thought the people were scattered from him. So King Saul took it upon himself, not only he's the king, but he's not a priest, he took it upon himself to offer sacrifice which was the priest's job. Do you remember the story? And King Saul offered the sacrifice, and as soon as the sacrifice had been made, Samuel showed up. Wouldn't you know, he should have waited just ten more minutes. And Samuel shows up and he says, what is that that thou hast done? And King Saul justifies himself. He rationalizes it by saying, Well, the people were scattered from me and I was afraid I was going to lose them. So I went ahead and did your job as well as mine. And Samuel told him that for this, because you've disobeyed the Lord, the kingdom will be taken from you and given to a man that is better than thou, a man after God's own heart. King Saul tried to be king and priest at the same time, and it cost him his kingdom. Another man, Uzziah, 2 Chronicles 26, who was a godly king. Uzziah was a good king. Remember Isaiah 6 in the year that King Uzziah died? Isaiah says, I saw the Lord. Uzziah was a godly king of Judah. But near the end of his days, he overstepped his bounds and he went into the temple to offer sacrifice in the place of the priests. And the priest, as soon as he was offering the incense offering, the priest came in and withstood him to the face, it says, and said, It appertaineth not unto thee, Uzziah to offer sacrifice for that is given to the sons of Levi and Uzziah was so angry it says he was wroth and he had the censer in his hand and he's about to hurl this fire this censer of incense burning incense upon the priest it says while he had the censer in his hand the leprosy rose up in his forehead and Uzziah saw that he was a leper and he ran out and he was a leper until the day of his death, and he died in a several house, that is, a quarantine community, because Uzziah the king tried to be a priest also. A king could not be a priest. Yet Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of the Most High God, and Jesus, who is not qualified, according to the Jews, to be a priest because he's not from the tribe of Levi, he's a king from the tribe of Judah, who's enthroned at the Lord's right hand until his enemies be made his footstool, is also at the same time a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And the idea here is that he is superior, that Jesus is superior to Levi. Just as Melchizedek was superior to Abraham, and Abraham is superior to Levi, and Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, he too is superior to the Levitical priest And the whole thrust of this argument is designed to teach us, therefore, the new covenant is superior to the old. I was very nervous about dealing with this passage because of my own shortcomings, but I hope that some of the things I've said today have made sense to you. It's a wonderful, thrilling theme. It's the heart of the book of Hebrews. It's so important. and Thank God today that we have such a great high priest who is set at the right hand of the majesty on high in the heavens whoever lives to make intercession for us.
1: Oh, yeah.